Hi everyone, Clay Winnell here. Just got done editing episode one of the Dad Bird Project. I'd usually just let it run straight through without a bunch of edits, but a little bit of background. We're trying to basically act as a coaching team to our friend Sean as he tries to qualify for the U.S. Mid-Am. So I went back and, and trimmed some of the fat. I don't want anything to be confusing to our listeners or to Sean, and I want to deliver a, a as consistent of a message as possible so people theoretically will improve. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to help Sean improve his process when he plays golf to give him the best chances of qualifying for the U.S. Mid-Am. So with that, I'll stop talking and hopefully you enjoy episode one of the Dad Bird Project. Please leave a comment or share with your friends if you think this is helpful. And we're going to do this on Monday nights and it takes me a little bit to edit, so, but it should go week to week. Okay, I'll shut up. Here's the Dad Bird Project. This is Sean Canan. We started calling him Dad Bird after college since he was the first in our friend group to have kids. And when he'd make a birdie on a hole, somebody invariably say something like, another birdie for dad. And that evolved into a dad bird. Now here we are. So he's a funeral home director, a father, a husband, and he plays to a pretty good one or two handicap. And he's got dreams of one day playing in the U.S. Mid-Am. And that's what brings us in, the three pros. I'm Clay Winnell, PGA professional and golf instructor from Dallas, Texas. And my mission in golf is to help golfers discover the same freedom I found during my journey on golf's mini tours. This is my friend Neil Ajibita. He's a professional golfer from New Orleans who's been chasing his dream of earning a PGA Tour card since we graduated Clemson together in 2010. Neil's currently enjoying full status on the PGA Tour Latino America following a win in their qualifying school earlier this year. And this is Gus Barchers. He's an award-winning PGA professional in Jacksonville, Florida who teaches golf, reads about golf, podcasts about golf, and plays at a high level. Our mission with this show is to help our friend Sean qualify for the U.S. Mid-Am. Welcome to the Dad Bird Project. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the Dad Bird Project. I am joined by a few of my friends, one of my friend's dads. They're currently on vacation, Neil and Al Ajubita. What is up, gentlemen? Sean, glad to be here, man. Where are you guys? Sean, looking forward to being with you. We're at the Cliffs in South Carolina, and we're at the Vineyard-specific property, the Vineyards, which is a nice uh, golf course. It's a, it's a Robert Trent Jones that play, plays around the uh, Lake Kiwi. Nice. All right, we got a, we got a baby new- Gus. Oh, Back baby Gus. All right, now we're going to it over to Gus. Gus, you are not in your usual location. Where are you? I am in beautiful Jamestown, Rhode Island. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I've heard about that before. I've heard it's very nice. It's very nice. It's the other side of Newport Bridge. Oh, yeah. Beautiful part of the town. (laughs) I love it over there. (laughs) Thank you, Gus. Gus. All right. Gus, my dad, Al, is on the show for tonight, too. Oh, this is fantastic. I'm a special guest. I'm bringing a a very uh, mature perspective to, to 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 the game tonight. I like that. I like that. I was a former collegiate golfer, and I still play twice a week. And I hold the lowest competitive round in the NCAA golf in the year 1991. No, no, 1971. Well, I was going to say, do you have a few more years of eligibility? 
What's that? I thought you had like 10 more years of eligibility or something. No, I lost my eligibility next year when I flunked out of school. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you shoot? Too many, too many, too many cigarettes and, and games and, of pool at the bar. And girls. All right. Al, what'd you shoot? What, what was your record score? 61. Where'd you shoot that? Damn. Uh, Audubon Golf Course, par 69. Uh, was, I beat Crenshaw and Kite. I was lower than, I had the lowest score that year, and Crenshaw, Kite, Howard Twitty, all of them played. HMD. So was that yeah. a, did, were you in the zone? What'd that feel like when you were playing? I was in a serious zone. Tell them, tell them the true story. It was my first date with my now current wife. Current okay. wife? Yeah. My current, your only my wife, right? Only wife, right. But she's current. She's still with me after all these years. She's still alive. And it was our first date. I said, come come walk with me and play, eight, you know, watch me play 18 holes. It was a match against Tulane and uh, LSU of New Orleans. And I said, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun. And I got out there, and I really wasn't thinking about golf. I was just so happy to have her with me, and I was in a zone where I didn't think about a swing thought or anything. Go ahead. 59 watch, bogey the last two holes. No, hard the last two holes. Hard the last two holes. Hard the last two, my bad. Added in at 10 10 feet and 8 feet, missed both putts because I was thinking about it. So there you go. You know, when you're thinking about a four, and that's something I can bring to the table here, that's when you go bad. So if you just think about, you know, the current and being in the present, you do better. And so that, that's the deal. How, so, how did you know how to put yourself there? Did you read books or was that intuitive for you to just to be in an athletic moment? That was about two weeks of playing excellent golf where I was just hitting the short game, the wedges, and the putts really well. So confidence. Yes, I got to confidence level. When I got it in – 80 yards, I knew I could get it up and down because I had worked on my game, worked on my game, had confidence when I put the wedge in my hand, I wasn't going to skull it, chunk it, or hit it, anything other than at the hole, and I just had the feeling, and I started you playing You knew you were well. scoring, yeah. so it didn't I, knew, I knew I was scoring. I was well, not thinking about it. What kind of ball were you playing? Uh, probably a ballada back then. It was... Titleist Pilates. So I, I wasn't freaking. I there. would think I always played Titleist my whole life. It was probably a a, a, a a wound ball. I would think you know at that point in time, if you hit a skull shot, you would put a crease in the ball. That's how many years <laughs> ago that was. Okay, it was so, wild. So have you had like the second most zone experience, or does that sit in a league of its own? It's by itself. I've never been there in my whole life other than that. Except was, when you're in the office dominating. Uh, yes, because you're not thinking about it. It's just reactionary. You Do know? you get any of the same sensation from a really successful day's work? Uh, no. No. When the no. big check comes in, I get the feeling. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> it's a but great it's answer. No, no. When you get a good result, it, it, there's euphoria that comes over you when you get a good result for a client, especially when the client's in dire straits and you know he needs your help. And then, you know, you feel good about that. But that day was just a kind of camera. Right, one of the best days of my life. I was just about to ask that. 
What's that? I was just about to ask, is that fair to call that your the your best day of your life? Everybody says it's supposed to be the wedding, but you met your wife and you shot your career low. I think that allows exactly. you to call it the best then day we, ever. Then we had a party after that that was second to none. You know? <laughs> so it was a good night. And so that was for Sean. If, if I have to give you a message, the concept was on that day, I wasn't thinking technique. I wasn't thinking score. I was just in, in, in a very relaxed basically you know feeling yeah see i don't i don't think technique at all just because i just i swing my swing it's just i know what it is but i always 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 think about score and that is like anytime i'm the only time which is which is weird that you just mentioned that was your lowest round the only time i never thought about score was when i was playing at stream song on rob's bachelor party and i had I think I had five birdies in an eagle. I was the it was the best round I've ever played. It was super windy, and I I had no idea where I was score wise. I just knew I was making a lot of birdies and bogeys, but I didn't care. And that was the that was the best round of golf I've ever played. And so you just let it go. You didn't you didn't. It probably you know helped that I was playing you know with Clay, Neil, Costa, and me. So I was like having fun. We were having some beer, so it was very relaxed. But I still. I wasn't thinking about the score where like even if I go out and play tomorrow with anybody, I'm going to be thinking about the score. But that day I didn't think about score at all because I didn't care. You know, I was having fun right? and I wasn't thinking about anything other than having fun. The goal, the goal of this is to make you feel like you're playing golf with Costa and men's league and having two or three beers. And it's like freewheeling, man. Cause I know that's, yeah. Oh, that's what I told myself before, like, the last time I played in a tournament for the Buffalo District Man. I was like, man, I keep going back to that stream song round where I just didn't care. I just had fun, and I wasn't thinking about anything at all. And then and then I had a, I had a shank. <laughs> Here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. It, and we, we, can get, we can get a little more serious about this. But if you, if you trust what you got going on, it's it's easy to not care. But if you don't know what's going on, it's it's very easy to start caring about what's going on, but if you're confident, in what's like if you know you, you know how you're hitting every little chip and every little shot, it's easy to let it go. You get you gotta get to that point where you say, okay, even if I'm not practicing, but I know my miss. Which you were saying before we even started the show is to is to find that one way miss. If you find that one way miss and you kind of know like where how far that carries and such, like just let it freaking go, man. Yeah. I think I got that pretty well down. You know, I like as long as I'm hitting a full iron into the green, I'm, I'm playing. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to miss the green. Like what's I think you, I'm hitting the green. Shot pattern? What's your I, shot? I hit the draw hit 100% of the time. 100% of the time. That's good. So you got a one way miss. Yeah. So that, that's very helpful. Yeah. I don't. I can't. Even, I can't even hit a fade. Sean picked up on something pretty subtle there, though. He's, he says it's good as long as it's a full swing. So there's some fear there of hitting half shots, or maybe it's just a lack of information. What What's your experience? That seems to be where your shanks are coming up, Sean. Yeah. Anytime, like, anytime I have to, you know, grip down a little bit on a club, or I got like a funky yardage. You can't tune it down. I can't tune it down. I I must. I just feel like. I don't know what it is for sure, but I feel like I just don't move my hands, just go, and then it's a shank or like a half shank. Do you know it causes the shank? I know 
like my long swing, my full swing, I'm very uh, in to out. So um, sometimes I'll just have a shank on a full swing because I'm just coming so far from the inside. So I've worked on trying to get that sometimes when it comes up often, which hasn't done a couple of years on full swings. So I've Gus. tried to figure that out. But um, Gus, talk these, on it. These half swings are really – What's Gus's just, relationship to Sean? Yeah. We're all, we're all – Gym guys. Yeah, Sean, who, who can you bring everybody in here? We got a little sidetrack. We got uh, Gus is with us now. Yeah, Gus, uh, Clemson PGM guy, current pro down in Jacksonville, currently living his best life in Rhode Island. And he is he is the short game track man equipment guy. Yeah, I would say I would say for a while there I was trying not to be a golf nerd, but there's no way to dispute it now. I think I'm just in it. I think you got you got bit by the bug and you're a golf nerd. Yeah, yeah. I'm a golf nerd. Gus, do you consider yourself a track man nerd as well? I'm pretty educated in track man. We use it pretty much daily at what we do at the club, either through fitting or teaching. Um and, it, and it's helpful. It's a nice tool to have. It allows us to get to sort of the source of the problem uh, a little bit quickly, uh, quicker than I think most people would get to. And it allows, allows us also, I think the biggest thing TrackMan does is it allows us to disprove some of the fallacies of the PGA teaching manual in terms of like what we thought happened in terms of what creates a golf shot in terms hey, of it's man, you got to keep your head down all the way through the swing yeah <laughs> exactly so i mean it's like this idea that like the pga came out with this model and how to teach the golf swing from and, and what's nice about it is it it's allowed us to simplify it even though it it tracks so many different data points that it can be very confusing but in a lot of ways, if you have somebody who knows what they're doing or, or understands TrackMan, in a lot of ways, it makes it more simple to understand for a player who doesn't practice, a player who practices a lot, um, and you really just get down to the nitty-gritty uh, really quickly. So it allows us to stop wasting time. And so when you go and you shank a ball, chances are you're trying to take speed off by either – not turning and this is a subconscious thing you're either trying not to turn as far back as you normally would or you're trying to not turn as far forward as you not normally would so what we see a lot of the time with a shank or somebody who sh who shanks the ball when they're trying to take yardage off is a lot of what ends up happening is the player is trying to either slow their body down or their body isn't moving enough in that swing and so both of those things are going to essentially manifest themselves with someone who's trying to flip and shut the face quickly or someone who's trying to they're either behind or in front of it and so let me, it's let me let me let me get in front of you right here you've said a lot of good things but the the thing that i like that you said the best is people who don't move their bodies manipulate the club and destabilize it. The guys who have good golf swings move their body and stabilize the club. I think that's 
Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. And, and I that's think the best they, thing that I heard from what you said. You said a lot of good things, but that was the big thing. And that I heard. let me jump in here. Let me let me put the filter on here and remind us while we're here. This is all great information. These are all important things for us to express. But let's put it through one more filter and figure out what this means for Sean. The mission of the show is to help Sean, and we can. There's lots of podcasts that can spout, you know, physics relationships. But knowing what we know about Sean's path and that he shanks half wedges, how would we? coach him to getting that out of his arsenal i would the way i would do it is honestly, i would honestly for the show hang on let gus go let gus go he's on the train let gus go first the, the way i would work with you sean would be first off i would make an adjustment in your setup that would allow you to feel a more fuller turn so you didn't feel like you were having to slow down so i would get you to make i would get you to put the ball a little more forward in your stance and I would get you to open up your stance a little bit. And and what we're trying to do here is we're trying to make you feel that big turn that you normally make in your golf swing, but also have your path move, have to move more left by changing ball position. I think a big time, a lot of the time I see a player, and chances are you probably do this, is that when you're trying to take yards off or flight a ball down, you'll move ball position back in your stance. And I think that all that does is make the golf club travel more right. And so what we're trying to get you to do here is we're trying to get you to feel a big turn, but have the ball more forward so that you have to turn further left coming through. And then a great drill I would use because it sounds like you're trying to take speed off by not moving your body and then you lose the synced up ability of your arms and your body together is I would, I would put some towels under your arm and I'd really get you to start feeling connected with your arms and having them stay close to your body, essentially have full extension, but have your elbows really on your body as you try to take yards off. And I think if you can move your ball position forward, and I think if you can feel like you make a big turn, but still feel connected, I think you'll see that you can easily take yards off via trajectory or speed um this, this, this is a this is a time out for the sh- for a show content thing i think if we're going to talk about things like that i think we should all i mean i mean, I like a lot of what you say gus but honestly i would say a few things that are different but i think we could overlap a few ways if we're going to make a show i feel like we should make things that everyone can kind of agree on no, yeah, and that's part of what this is. We're supposed to be like Sean's team, so we can't give him different advice. And my first, my first suggestion is I'd like to see Sean swing a wedge. Yeah, no, that's a great point. A- 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 along with TrackMan numbers would be great, but I'd like to see Sean swing a wedge. Okay, so I'm going to write that down. We need to put that online. And before we can make any fair prescription for a way for him to practice with his limited practice, it's fair to at least look at what he's doing. Is that fair in your opinion Gus yeah I mean we're just making inferences off one golf swing that track me counted I mean the other the other thing that has to do with path and Neil's correct is the shallowness of the steepness or, or the steepness of the path so if you have a player that's seven down or ten down with a wedge it's really it's going to be almost impossible for him to swing start to swing it left because those things don't co-align themselves so i mean and it's not that i love that it's not that i'm trying to get them to go minus four it's that i'm trying to get them to be less into out right so it's trying to get them closer to zero that's all we're trying to do 
so for sure, for sure. no yeah i so i mean you, i think neil's right i mean steepness with a wedge is everything because because of the amount of loft on the ball on the golf club you have so much backspin that's overtaking that golf shot that it really matters how steep you are in the golf ball so i mean we're just making inferences on this idea of like okay every now and then you shank the golf ball but i think the overall emphasis here is that you've got to figure out as a player how to sync up your body and your arms and take off yardage and know that the club can't be going five six seven eight degrees right in terms of its path and that may be and that may be a shallowness steepness conversation and it's all this inference so i mean it's really easy to I think. No, I mean, yeah, I think we're I, I too know, far. Yeah, no, there's there's a certain number where where too much rise is too bad, where it gets very under and low. I I, I tell, I'm totally with you. There 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 is a realm of what is acceptable, but as far as the content of the show is concerned, if we can get video or and or trackman where we can get a video of Sean on this show, if this if this is a vlog and not just like a a radio type of deal we can all get we can all get the video and we can put our own two cents in each of us i can do that with just an ipad right here i'll do that for the next show and right but right but but nothing to be conflicting Think, things that that no one is everything every, everyone agrees on something that is congruent right a hundred percent at the beginning of the show, Al asked, you know, what gives us the right to think that we're going to help Sean? And I think it's critical to the foundation of the show that we're not claiming that he's going to qualify. We're just trying to use what we know about the swing and track man to give him every possible chance based on just like giving him information just to give him a better chance. That's something I think the average Joe can relate to is like, I can't practice, but I'd really love to go win my club championship. Well, is I, there is there information that I can learn from this podcast to help me? I, I I I do believe that all three of us have different views, but I do believe that we can all three of us can find something congruent that can work for Sean very easily from just looking at a little bit of video. Agreed. And some agreed. And I think right now, hang on, Al, one just one second. So part of this show is we're setting up goals for Sean. We're setting up. To, and part of that's brainstorming. And what we just did, I think, is we listed one of his liabilities. Uh, shanks are a liability. And that's a to me, it's it's a non-mental shank because to me, it's information based. It's lack of information of how to hit a proper half wedge. So if we can give him information that he truly, honestly understands, we can eliminate that particular shank because I think that's very much just an information-based like confusion that causes the body to basically spasm, and then you got a, a shank. And Sean, you telling me you shank only with the wedge and with no other sh no other clubs? Uh, any <clears throat> any like half uh, probably like ninety percent with uh, a half wedge. So one hundred twenty-five yards is like a little off a pitching wedge. The last two weeks, that's been an automatic shank. Why don't you just get uh, a gap wedge? Because it doesn't. I need to hit something one twenty five. <laughs> I Why? got a fifty four that goes one fifteen. I got well, a pitching wedge that goes one forty. Okay, so that I'm like I'm writing that down as another liability. You have big gaps. I I would I would like to write down all of Sean's carries on all of his clubs. That's another his, good another like good to, episode. I like, I like to get all of his mins. 
all his men's averages and maxes. Okay, we can work on that. We got that data. Um, so that's another liability. We got big gaps. That's another episode we can talk about set makeup. Not that we're going to change your Gus, clubs, but Gus, you look extremely unenthused right now. <laughs> Oh, I'm listening. I'm listening. Okay, so uh, short game is another liability. So we've got gaps in the bag. We've got the shanks based on the lack of information of how to efficiently hit a half shot. Uh, And then the other thing that I think we can help him with is just general inexperience. Neil, you've played in thousands of professional tournaments. And down the line in different episodes, we can express things to Sean that theoretically give him a little bit of an edge over people that are freaking out in competition. Uh, if this is on me, yeah, I'll talk about prep. There, there's, there's lots of different types of prep. You can, you do prep, you do prep a month out. You do prep, I'd say two weeks out, and you do prep the week of. There's different types of prep. Um, so uh, realistically, we're our qualifiers one September. Uh, I think August. Okay, so this August, is important. Sixteenth, like to- I think. Okay, so what can we do basically in a month where he goes into that practice round before the U.S. Mid-Am and like, I learned 5% of something from that podcast. Like, I something helped me. Well, Sean, what do you – I mean, it's, this is about Sean. I mean, Sean, what, what do you feel like you need to – I mean, here's the deal, a Mid-Am qualifier. I mean, really, it's what it's going to take is for you to play – a golf course that they're going to what set up at 7,000 yards at the most 6,900. I mean, what are yeah. you playing? Uh, playing Lancaster. I played there. They had the, I played there a bunch of times. Um, it will probably be 66, 67, right? In my wheelhouse. Okay. All right. So 6,700 yards. And what's your, what's your average length of the par five? Uh, I don't know. I had to look it up. But uh, just just trying to think of the last time I played there. What the uh, I don't I don't know. I had to look it up. At this I don't know. course, I mean, yeah, probably five fifty. Yeah, so you got to figure out like I mean, how many holes out there for you? Like right off the top, that you feel are really gettable from what they look like to how comfortable you feel on them, and then how many holes out there are the ones that kind of make you unsure based on elevation change or mm-hmm. whether the shot moves from left to right or right to left. You know, where where on the golf course can you identify your trouble spots? And then, you know, I think Neil can help you with a sort of a practice round regime that allows you to take on those hard holes with a mentality that that makes sense in that moment. Um, but I think it's about identifying where are your go zones, where where should you feel comfortable, where are you going to make hay? But then at the under, understanding of like, look, man, even is what gets into this thing, right? Right. So, I mean, it's just the mid-am itself. We had a player who qualified for it. He shot 71, got in, and then played really good through the qualifiers. He basically shot even to get into match play or one or two under or something like that and had a really hard golf course. And as soon as, and that's the weird thing about the USGA, the qualifier in the golf course that you're going to play in the actual event 
are totally different animals. That's going to feel like a totally different beast. The golf course is going to get immensely harder in the actual tournament. So if the goal is to get into the mid-am, to me, it's like, let's understand the property you're going to. Let's understand sort of the fear factors of certain holes for you. And then let's try to mitigate some of those fears so that you feel like, hey, these are the holes that I can really excel on and pick up shots on the field. And these are holes where I'm going to have to understand how good four is here for me. And then what are my you know, what is my strategy to make those fours? How can I make, you know, really aggressive swings at conservative targets? But I mean, to me, that's a Sean question. So Sean, you tell me, what are your, you know, what are your feelings about the golf course you're going to go play? And what is something that you feel like you need to know or want to do better while you're there? So I like, I think I would love to do what Gus just said. I could definitely go through all the holes tomorrow. I've played there I probably played there a dozen times, so I'm familiar with the course once I look at it again. Like I played there last year. Once I just pull it up on Google Earth, I'll know what I hit off the tee, what ones are difficult. My biggest problem in like tournament golf would be I have this plan in place. I get so what what I would need your help with, and I think what most people would is how do I have this plan in my head where I'm gonna hit okay, driver, give me an eight iron, lay up four iron, six iron. And then on the same hand, just 20 minutes ago, I said, I want to pretend like I'm having four Bud Lights and I don't care. Like if I go back to that stream song round, I had never seen that course before in my life, but I wasn't thinking at all. I was just, I, I literally hit driver on every part four and every part five. That's my go-to. That's my, that is my style of golf. Because well, I, devil's advocate, you got lucky hitting drivers when you shouldn't. I mean, it, it's not taking anything away from that you played great. I saw it. It was a great round. But if you think about it statistically, you got kind of lucky just bashing driver. But maybe not if you're really confident. I mean, I feel I feel like you could put a hula hoop in a fairway and I could land the driver. Right. No, that's where you need to be in your qualifier. If you can find that, you qualify. I mean, Gus, real quick, for someone who has no idea what we're talking about, what's the mid-am, who's playing in it, and what's the purpose of it? Yeah, the mid-am is run by the USGA. It's an event that, that essentially is trying to eliminate the college golfers from competing in it. So it's everybody from 25 and up. You have to be 25 years old or older to compete. You have to be an amateur golfer to compete in it. And what we find is it's a lot of the guys who are money managers. So a lot of the guys on the highest level from Stuart Hagestat to um, to Ben, to uh, the Patrick Kristovich, to all these guys who are on the mid-amp circuit, they're playing all year in the Coleman. The full Patrick Kristovich, I beat him in a member guest. <laughs> yeah, well, you're you're those are the guys you're playing, and and so what these guys do, and I think this is sort of the deal here. The USGA is putting on this event for guys that are not playing college golf with the idea that these guys are working. They have different jobs. They're amateur golfers, but they pursue it at a high level. But but I think what they are failing to realize is that the guys who are playing in this event are actually playing all year. We call it the cocktail circuit. And they're playing in all different amateur events from the Timaquana Cup to what they do at the Honors Course to Seminole to L.A. Country Club to Pine Valleys. And they're all these really high end places that hold these amateur events for small fields. And, and there's rankings that go into all of these things. But the guys who really do well are guys who are playing all year. 
in competitive atmospheres at really hard golf courses. Um, so that's sort of the drawback of the medium is that you feel like, oh, these guys are like me. And then you get out there and you realize, holy shit, these guys are just sponsored by their law firm to go play with clients day in and day out. And they're just guys who are playing and they're under a different sort of corporate structure. They're not professional golfers, but in large part, they are. They have an extreme amount of money. Um, they have an extreme amount of backing. And for the most part, they're playing a ton of golf year in, year out. And they're playing under tournament pressures. And so I think in the qualifier, you're going to play guys that are like you. And so I think an even par score, but in the actual event, you're going to go there and you're going to be like, holy shit, these guys are preparing like tour players. So is it, so, would a better, can I, can, what, I sum, can I summarize, can I summarize? I don't know if that's a word, but go ahead. There, there are guys who are playing for a number. Sean isn't a guy who's playing for a number. There are guys who play year round in all these events. Sean's goal isn't it is the mid am, but is it's truly it's not the mid am. Mid Sean is going for a process. Okay, so his goal is, can only be process bound. I true I truly believe so. Like like there are so many guys who play way more than Sean. There are so many things outside of Sean's not abilities, but boundaries. Some of these guys pl truly play almost full time. You can't say that Sean needs to get into the mid am. Sean needs to accomplish a lot of things for himself before you can say, "Let's go, let's go get in the mid am." That's right. I, like I want to get in that cocktail club. I want to go play honors course, Pine Valley. I want to get in that cocktail club, <laughs> the mid am. <laughs> That's really what you want to do, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that's a good reality uh, every, check. Every, Gus, every, that's a good reality check. But it is it. possible for Sean to get in. Is it a better goal for him to achieve, to advance? I know it's not his goal, but is it like more of a challenge for him to get to like the second round of the U.S. Mid-Am or is just getting in? I'm getting in. Getting in is great. I would say it's the more, the more responsibility Sean puts on what he can control – the further he will he will go as an amateur. You can't control where you score or or how you finish, but the, the more he puts on himself as a player, as what he can control, as his his personal demeanor or how he feels about pressure and those types of things, Sean will Sean will progress as a player. But as far as playing guys who are these real estate guys, like you can't measure yourself as that. Like you're not going to play as much as those guys, and honestly. Sean does not care about guys like that. No, nor should he. That's 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 not Sean's bag, baby. Signed, <laughs> signed by Austin Powers. Sean Sean has a few controllable things that he needs to focus on before we even talk about those powerful guys who played those monster tournaments. But I think it's a great. I know it's like a, it's not a goal. The goal is the process, and that I think is an awesome point. And I'm going to go back on you and figure out what can be things within his process goal. But I think we all need to agree on the premise that Sean can make it into the U.S. Mid-Am if he plays a good round. For sure. But I don't, that, that, is, that is the goal. But truly, you can't be looking at that as a measuring point. I know, but this is worthless if we don't honestly agree that he is physically possible because it's only a month away. So can he, in one month, play a solid round 
and not shank it and have a good plan and have a great process and make it? The measurement, the honestly, the true measurement, if you're a golfer, the true measurement isn't if you get in or not. The true measurement is did I did I execute my plan as best as possible? Everyone has everyone as a human has a, a fault. And you can measure that to a different degree of variability. And the amount of effort Sean puts in is is not maybe what you might expect, maybe more, maybe less, but that doesn't matter. Sean's goal is whatever Sean can put into it and what he can control. And that's it. I mean, Sean's not going to make it this year, but if he has reasonable goals of like keeping himself in, in, in reasonable check of like, okay, like I'm not excited. Like, you know, this, this is, this is my shank range and here's where I should make my, my changes of like, I should hit a full shot or reverse like dialing down, dialing one down. That's what I'm saying. Like the, the measurements of a number are irrelevant. So it's irrelevant. So what are some uh, areas that Sean can give himself a a check or an X in terms of his process? If, if the only goal is the, is a better process and feeling like, man, I learned something. What can he do? I mean, if he buys in, it's, it's, it's emotional things. Like, did I keep myself in check? If I birdie, like, did I get too excited? Or if I, if I double bogeyed, if I double bogey and I get to the next hole, like, am I going to try to like ram this 30 footer in or am I going to do the right thing and try to hit it with some good speed and make par? All right. So let me jump in there. What, let me jump in there emotionally. What can he do? Is there like an emotional like scorecard or test that he can do on the course? Sean said it. Sean said it on the last podcast. He said he shanked one and he shanked another one. And he got it on the green. He said he was so pissed off. He free putted. Okay. So what can he do on the course to, to recognize that situation and let it go? If, if Sean is not score oriented and if he is process oriented, it doesn't matter if you're playing for double eagle. Or if you're playing for a bogey, you're hitting the same shot, and it doesn't matter. Okay, that's very well put, and I like your passion. I love the passion. That's true. It's like emotions are not compatible when you're present because you're so invested in the process that emotions are like speaking Chinese when you're speaking English. It doesn't make any sense. We're talking about, we're talking about zombie mode. Let's go back to zombie mode. Yes, this is zombie mode. And the way that you're saying the key to zombie mode is process oriented golf. I, I can't I can't take people to say, okay, it's like it's like people who are on TV like and this is Roy McElroy for Eagle. No, you're not putting for Eagle. You're just putting. Like like please get this announcer out of your brain. The putt is just a putt and the shot is just a shot. And they're all individual things. Like I can't I can't I'm totally on board for Sean to qualify for the mid-am, but you can't. The goal can't be the mid-am. The goal is to hit every shot with a. So how do I? I agree with Neil. I I agree with Neil. For me personally, that's where I want to get to. So how do I just just like trying? So the next time I go to the golf course, try that mentality, and maybe maybe I get like. 10% 10% of my shots are like, all yes. right, I just didn't care. That was a putt. That was a chip. That was a wedge. Big deal. Doesn't matter. And then I go again next week and 20% of my shots were, all right, don't care. Like driver, eight iron, blob, like just like boring, 
get up, hit it. Would that be how I gain more confidence and get more used to just like, like you said, taking that announcer out of your head? Because it happens to me. If I have an eagle putt, I am like, holy shit, this is an eagle putt. I don't get these very often where I don't care, but I don't get that way for birdie putts so much. And I definitely have that same feeling for like a nine footer for par versus a nine footer for birdie. Cause in my head, I'm like, all right, nine footer for birdie. That's par at worst nine footer for par. I'm like, holy shit. I really got to right. carry this. Right. Or I'm going to have a bogey. As, as soon as you hit a par five and two, you're saying, Oh my God, I can three putt this and get away with par. Like that's okay. Like honestly, be, be truthful with me. A lot of people think that way. I think the other way where like, this is embarrassing if I three putt it because I never get here into I don't want to three putt. That and, would be like that would and, be embarrassing. And then I hit a bad putt because I'm not really And that's like not, e- and that's equally as impressive. Like where where you're still thinking about the number. The number is completely irrelevant. Like I like I it's it's irrelevant. So, so that's it's, where it's, I want to get it shouldn't to. be in the bag, but it shouldn't to be that I wanna to get to Neil's like perspective on hitting each individual golf shot, but I want to, (laughs) I want to do Gus's towel thing because I think, I I think I'm, I'm closer to, I'm closer to Neil's plan than I probably uh, think I am. Like I, I think I, cause I, the the listeners of this podcast don't know me, but you guys know me very well. I, I truly don't care about much outside of a few things like friends, family work, golf. I really, nothing bothers me so the fact that i can go i think i could i think i can do neil's thing easier maybe than i can do gus's thing because i don't and i i can get video for you guys to look at my swing and you can tell okay that wasn't it this is it but i feel like my swing is so ingrained in my body that's that'll be harder for me to overcome i think than yeah no than I, neil's um i agree thing. i if if, if everything is just – if we're just taking an overall look at this, you're absolutely more close to achieving a process on the golf course. And I think every golfer, every listener at home is much closer to achieving their best golf by adhering to their process. Uh, we lost Gus there, but I think what he's trying to say is that people are – not as far off mentally as they think they are. Um, and they think the process, yeah, yeah, process. Everybody says process, but it's critical. Gus, are you back with us? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're right. You're a month away. There is nothing, there are not. there is no amount of golf balls on the range that will convert to you making the mad am. There's no, there's no, like, if it was, if someone said you have to hit 6,000 golf balls between then and now to make the mid amp, well, that would be really easy, right? People would just hit 6,000 golf balls and it wouldn't matter what, what happened. It would just be a number, but that's not how these things work. So I think the thing to help you is, and we're talking about it is in where something where Neil and Clayton can really help you here is the mental side of a pre-shot routine and really believing in each step of the process. And, and in my world, it's we ride in carts, right? So it's like, okay, I get the range finder out. I shoot the number. I 
get the number, then I determine a windage, and then I determine where the flagstick is, and then I determine what has to, where the ball has to be and where the best place for this ball to go if I'm not going to hit it perfect is, right? And those are all factoring into a club choice or, you know, a target line, right? And so once you have club choice and once you have target line, then it becomes what do I believe in myself that I can do? And, and Neil talked about breathing last time and he and, he, and i think clinton talked about how one time he was playing golf and neil looked at him and said what are you doing like one time you hit two practice swings and this time you had one practice swing you're playing golf like you're playing craps like you're rolling the dice and all of a sudden like let's hope to hit a good shot and i think you what we're really talking about is the self-belief in your in you to do the simple things prior to the shot so that every shot becomes the same they're all worth one in the grand scheme of things, right? The birdie putt has no no real difference than the driver on the next hole, right? So I think Neil and Clayton can really help you with that idea of what do you do before the golf shot that can make just, you feel the most comfortable to then hit the golf shot. Just just to just to do a little small elaboration on what you just said. In a nutshell, basically, like when you're on the putting green and you're playing like a little putting game with your boys, like do you go get behind the hole. Or do you just look at it and roll it? Like, honestly, Sean, personally, yeah, I, I have, uh, I, the only routine I have pre shot routine. That's the same. Every time is, is on the putting green. So, so do you practice the same way that you play your golf? No, no. So that, that's, that's basically the point that I was getting at when, when you get on the putting green and you're practicing, like Gus says, like, just you do repetitions you do repetitions the same way you compete like you you have to make it all the same like if you if you read your putts and your money games like on the putting green for like five dollar three putts like if you just look behind it like you play your normal you, you, you normally play your competitive game looking just behind it like you keep that shit the same if you don't want to Keep it all. Keep it all uniform. Is basically what I'm saying. Neil, there's a lot there. Uh, part of it is like uh, this. That's really great point on the range. You, what you see guys doing on the range when they're on tour is it largely them just warming up their muscles, or are they trying to like find something, or are they all just getting into the process and seeing little examples of what their games like that day? Uh, pre round is always just loosening up. I don't see too many guys like super. No one's grinding before a round unless you see somebody somebody really, really struggling. Everyone's just kind of getting their body loose and making sure they see the, the shape that they think they're going to see. And if people aren't seeing the shape that they expect to see, you know, you, they're adapting. But otherwise, otherwise, it is uh, what it is. And you're just kind of getting loose and you can just go out for the day. I'd like to introduce something in this point, and it's a lot of what I write about. Um one thing I think you can do is change the way you keep score, and it's in line with what uh, Neil is saying. I think your process, or at least mine, boiled down to before every shot, I put together an honest plan based on the yardage, the wind, what I know I can do, what's the least stressful shot. That's part of my process. Once I create what I feel is an honest plan, something I think I'm going to do good on, then my only job is to swing once I'm in that place of, oh, I think I'm going to do good. That's my honest comfort. So yeah. to me, I put together a great plan that forms honest an honest plan. And then afterwards, 
I don't, I don't swing until I feel that honest comfort. And I think that's something you can do on your scorecard is when you hit a good shot, right? Like, okay, that was a pretty good representation of my plan. If you hit a bad shot, try to figure out why you hit a bad shot. Did you hit a bad shot because you had no plan or a dishonest plan or a stressful plan? Or did you hit a bad shot because you didn't feel honest comfort before you pulled the trigger? And those, that's a good way for you to start seeing a relationship between a good process and good golf shots. So instead of just in, in each, so like on a scorecard, I wish I had one right here. So you got like five boxes down for hole one. So instead of, you know, Tom, Bob, yada, da, da, just do each shot gets its own box on each hole. And for the drive on number one in the first box, if you say, I'm going to hit a high draw and you hit a high draw, it's okay. And then if you hit a, a terrible shot, you figure out, okay, why did I just hit that terrible shot? Is it because I didn't commit to some sort of plan before I hit or did I hit without any kind of comfort? And that should, in my opinion, help you get more process oriented. So where would you, so I played on Sunday morning and I teed off early. I was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit hungover. I get to the first hole. I have 145 yards into the green. Left pin. Left is dead. I hit one more club because I'm like sore, tight, or whatever. I, I tell myself I should hit this at the middle of the green because I'm going to draw it. Worst case scenario, I hit it straight and it'll be in the middle of the green. Instead, I tell myself, nah, shoot. F it. Hit it right at the pin. I hit a draw right at the pin. It goes left of the green. I was dead. So where would that rack up? like a mental idiot like hey everybody this is clay just editing this podcast a couple days after we recorded it with sean and gus and neil and uh, as i'm listening to this question from sean i realize i don't give him a very good answer i don't know if i wasn't listening or what but i want to make sure i address this uh, and do better in the future so his question is on the first hole of the day you know i've got a good plan to hit to the center of the green and then at some point between the time that he creates that plan and the time that he starts swinging the club, the plan changes in his mind to screw it. I'm going to aim right at the flagstick. And he's asking, you know, what is that? You know, how would you rank this mentally? What, what would I do differently? And my answer would be, well, you didn't have a honest plan. You didn't commit to a plan. You had a good plan. And then at some point that plan was corrupted. So what I would advise players to do that I coach uh, to have more of a process-based uh, game would be to recognize that moment where the plan has shifted to go at the flagstick, back off the ball, and start over again. And not to say that you can never go at a flagstick. If you're confident, sure, go at the flagstick. But if the plan on the first hole of the day is go for the middle of the green, and that's what you honestly think that you can do, then stick with it and um, don't make your swing until you have a very committed, clear vision of what you want to do. And if something interrupts that, i.e., you know, now I'm going to go right to the flagstick, back off the ball and start again. So sorry, I didn't answer this question properly the first time, Sean. You'll hear the tangent that I went down, but uh, I'll try to do better in the future. OK, back to the show. Let me ask you this. Right. This was the first hole of the day. Yeah. Did you warm up at all? No. Okay, so that's a fir good first point. I think that if you want to play in the U.S. Man, I mean, you at least have to warm up. I know that's that might not be your normal thing, but the purpose of it is not no, to work I on your swing. No, I certainly now I, I warm up before I go play golf because I'm like too tight to 
Like I don't. I'm just so getting you, old. You know that you have to do a little maintenance. In I order. have to. Yeah. I have to go to the driving range. I have to swing around that orange whip thing. I know I can't just show up to the first tee like I used to. So, so I, th- I think that's part of your process too. Is is you got to do some sort of warm up every time you go play, even if it's like six swings. Just make sure it's a good six swings. And you don't yeah. have you don't have to hit a bunch of balls on the range, but I think it's important for you to start little baby steps of okay, I can hit six great chips where I visualize a spot on the green where I want it to land, and I don't pull the trigger until I feel comfortable. And if even if it's three balls, it's just every little every little shot is like a game, and you just got to treat it like that. And how good was my result in relation to my intent? That's the game. And sometimes it's yeah. almost exactly what you're trying to do. And that's like, holy cow, that was like one of three or four shots, maybe max per round. But golf to me is about hitting okay shots, some sort of reasonable relation to your intent. And if you do that all day in the U.S. Mid-Am, you'll shoot about even par and you got a chance. Um, where you're going to get into trouble is when you don't have any plan or you've got a plan based on your ego, like, or, or you got a plan based on, I got to, you know, try to hit this three wood on the green to make a birdie. Um, that's where you're going to get in trouble. So you need to do everything in your power to maximize each golf shot you hit from now until the event. Get the most juice out of the squeeze. So yeah. try to hit every shot. Like every try- shot should be comfortable. Every or- shot. You should have a shot tracer. Some people are better at visualizing than others. But for every shot you hit, you should at least have some sort of mental picture of how the ball is going to travel through the air to get to its target. And you I have that. Okay, I you, have that. you that become like very fascinated too. with that. So instead of your your awareness drifting back to your grip and that grip, oh god, my hands kind of sore today, or you know, my ball position looks weird. You have to find a way to stay with that visualization up until the moment where your backswing begins. Because your awareness is going to zoom inward. Your job is to keep your awareness outward on your process, on your goal the entire time. And it's going to be easier said than done to do that. But in my opinion, as long as you're like 51% still with the target, even if you like notice some little nuance in your swing or something, you're going to be okay. But that's, that to me is going to be one thing that you can do is just change your paradigm of how you look at hitting golf shots. What were you going to say, Gus? I just... It goes into so Larry Mize won the Masters in 1987, and he was a member at the Country Club of Columbus where I worked about five years ago. and And he always talked to you know we talk about the mental game, we talk about playing the game, but the mental game for him he summarized as this, and he said every he goes par people think of par fours and par fives and par threes like holistically as like a total and he's like and what i do when i'm playing on tour and playing in big events is i think of every shot being a par so there's 72 pars and the idea here is that if every shot you have this baseline or or an idea of what is par for this golf shot You know, not what's better than par, not what's worse than par, but what is par for this golf shot? And you play 72 little shots where you're trying to play. You're playing 72 holes. You're not playing 18. You're playing 72 holes at all that each include a par for that golf shot. You can stay within the present, um, I think, much better. And I think it's a a cool little way to think about it. Um, 
as far as playing goes is like I love this that. one. So this one, so each, so, you know, when you go and you make a four, you didn't make a, you know, you didn't make a par four, you made, you know, four par ones essentially. Yeah. Right. So it's that idea of really believing in par is 72 because I'm hitting 72 holes right now. I'm hitting 72 shots and then, or par for each shot and you stay there i think it allows you to because you do you said it yourself you think about score well why don't you think about score in, in that in that regard because then i could still think about score just in a completely different, different way capacity. which would right. still keep if like my brain is so enthralled with score i still get a score aspect of it but i'm not thinking yeah. of the actual golf score right but, i love that i yeah. would try that but also great humble brag Larry Mize and you are boys. Very good. Snuck that in. Yeah, I caught it, though. Very good humble brag. Um, but, yeah, but Larry was really forthcoming with that type of information. Um, and, and so it was, it was really helpful for him to think about that, uh, for me to think about that as, as a player, too. So I like that. I like that part of your process. Definitely include that. And then I would also just try try to do this for nine holes the next time you go play. Hopefully, you know, you don't put any money on the line or whatever, but really try to play away from the flag stick. So for nine holes, pick whether it can be harder, you know, like let's say the flag stick's in the middle, but you're playing to the back right corner, right? Just because that's what you're choosing, play away from the flag stick on purpose um, and really change how you see the target. Cause we see that like vertical target with the flag on it. And yeah. I think it sends different brainwaves. If the flag sticks weren't out there, right. Then you really couldn't see it at all. So really it becomes of like playing like sort of a quadrant game of, you know, I want it in the back left, front left, back, right, front, right, you know, and, and try to think about it in those type situations and see if you can do it, do it for three holes, do it for three holes and, and then count the shots up later. But, um, you know, flip the game on its head a little bit and mix it up in your mind. You know, you're always thinking about playing your best or lowest round ever. And I think it's more about playing, uh, a different game with, within yourself. So try to try to change the game a little bit in the weeks coming and, and see how that happens, see what happens. And this is the stuff that you can't get on Instagram. You can't get on YouTube. I can look up how to hit a fade, how to hit a draw, and there's going to be 50 people on there with a 25-minute video clip on how to hit a fade or how to hit a draw. But nowhere on there can I find how to make me a better golfer with my current setup, just thinking about things differently. And like I never even would have considered – those two things you just mentioned as a way to make me a better golfer mentally by not, not changing anything with my swing. I'm still going to hit a draw to those areas. I'm still going to have my draw be a par, you know, off the tee or on a par three or my second shot in. But those are things that I think would help any of any listener out there who is just kind of struggling to get over that hump. Like I am kind of to think about game, this game differently than just flipping through on Instagram, finding out how to hit a flop shot or something. Well said. A million of those. No, well said, Sean. And to me, looking at Neil's frustration with what we were talking about before he signed off, he's visibly frustrated because he's been through all this before. 
and he's sort of on the other side of the looking glass, looking back at us, because he's better than all of us. He's way better than I ever was. I mean, on an occasional day, I can beat him, but hand in my heart, he's way better golfer than I am. And that a big part of that is because he's had years of this realization that golf, good golf comes from process. And he's looking at us like, you idiots, like, you know, you're giving him bad advice. But yeah. I think once you're on the other side of that looking glass, and I think the way that you get there is by doing drills, Gus just, you know, described and seeing that there's a game within the game. And um, that's, uh, that's really, really cool. Good, uh, good stuff there, Gus and Sean. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying A, the towel drill to fix my shanks. Can we jump in there uh, real quick, Gus? Do you think it's wise for him to even consider doing that this close to the event? Is that an, not that big of a change where it could help him from an inadvertent shank in competition just if he has a few reps in there? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yes, it's not going to hurt you, bro. But, I mean, the deal here is – you know, it's much easier to add a club. We talked about it last week and it sounds like you need to. So just, you know, add a 48 degree wedge um, to your set and just go see how far that goes. And chances are it'll probably go like 122 and you'll fill that gap and you can take out whatever club that doesn't fit the golf course, whether it's a five wood or a three iron or three wood. Um, and, and that would help, but I mean, yeah, you have long range goals and you have short term goals a month away. You're pretty much in a short term goal setting. So I think it's much more about like, Hey, you know, your numbers and that's good. You have a good understanding of what that's going to do, but like we could work for a long time and get those numbers to change very minimally. Um, we, we could, or they could change a lot in, in either situation that doesn't necessarily help you tomorrow. You know, and if the tournament was tomorrow, I think you're much better off focusing in that idea of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to try to make par on my first swing of the day. And then I want to try to make par on my second swing of the day. And I'm going to continue that throughout the round. And what the score is, score is going to be what it's going to be. And I know golf is hard, but I got to I got to there's no there's no amount of practice that's going to duplicate the feeling that you have of pressure on the first hole or the fifth hole or the 18th hole. So, you know, short term, absolutely trying to change the game within the game, try to work on the mental side of things um, and try to have fun and then try to understand your tendencies, right? You think about score. Okay, fine. Think about score, but let's think about score differently. You know, maybe they're all numbers to you still, but let's think about them um, singularly instead of like this big approach. Cause, cause I remember the good rounds that I have played, I'm exhausted after because I am so into every golf shot and everybody goes, wow, great round. And I go, I don't even know how it happened. Like, I don't even know, like I couldn't tell you how it happened. Really. I could just tell you how it felt and how tired I am right now. And then the shots just worked out as they would. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of those situations for me, it was like, I never missed left. I just kept it in front of me. I just never missed left. And I hit, you know, I always missed it in a location where I felt really comfortable with. So that's how great rounds happen. So in the short term, if you were going to go play tomorrow and play nine holes after work, whatever it is, um, take out the flag sticks in your mind and, and play every shot as if there's a par for just that shot. And then we'll see what it ends at, at the end. So, I mean, Long-term and short-term goals for sure. I think Neil, I think Neil gets frustrated um, with the idea, you know, 
like the his like his comment of I hate guys who swing it left. I mean, like, what does that mean? You know, like I think that comes really from a frustration where someone tried to get him to swing it left and he wasn't as successful as he could have been. And so he kind of you he applies that emotion to it. I just think it's 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 just numbers. So, you know, I pitch all that to the side. I just think you need to focus on, you know, stick to a plan, whatever it is. I mean, if you really like that, go with it and play with it for two rounds, three rounds, four rounds, and then make everything. You have to make everything from six feet and in. So you put a chalk line down. Those are where the drills really get into. If you talk to great players, they all have a putting drill that they work on for at least one or two hours a week, whether it's a chalk line or a teaching aid or whatever it is, or the putting perfect, you know, invest in a teaching aid for your putting. Because it's basically sighting in, you're sighting in a rifle scope every time you do it. And you have to perform that maintenance on your golf club, on your putter. So, I mean, that's where I would put the time that, and the drills that's, in. That's about like, so I, I, I putt pretty much every day at work. And my favorite drill, which I just, you know, I saw Billy Horschel doing it when we were at the shell. He had two little tees in front of him, like a foot in front of him. And he just kept burying these putts one foot away from each other. Just like a ball barely fit through these tees. And I said to myself, if I can putt it one foot in front of me, as long as I'm aimed where I think I'm aimed, six feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, I'm basically making this one footer every single time. And I'm so I started doing that. I started doing a tease in front, and then I started putting them like three feet in front. So just, just draining yeah. in these like – yeah. three footers that are just that's where I put perfectly the time online in. and that's how you do it work like chairs so teeth. sean one of the things i picked up on when i was playing professionally is there's like two types of putting drills like what to me what you're describing is what new uh, gus was saying is you're sighting in your rifle scope this is repetition yeah. to train your eye to line up properly and to see a good stroke do you my question is do you have you ever done any putting drills on the other side of the equation so are emotional putting drills have you done any drills where you are legitimately nervous on your last putt yeah so like the last two years before i would like tee off in a tournament or like any sort of money match i would make myself you know try to hit 10 like four footers in a row and you know i get to that ninth tenth and feel a little bit of pressure and that was fun but it just got to the point where i was getting frustrated because i'm like rushing through these 10 to make 10 in a row so i stopped doing that because um that was the only time i did like a game with pressure i've never done like a um, a real drill except for in college when I would go to the Walker course with our old pal Jim Lizzie and we would do we would do putting contests for two hours for you know 20 bucks for 18 holes 20 bucks for nine holes because we didn't feel like going to play golf but we would putt so uh, I definitely would like to do more of that because I had I like putting putting is fun I like practicing putting I like doing the drills but I haven't I need to find a, I found some guy on Instagram that has like really good putting drills I want to try. So I would just, whatever you pick, whatever you pick, it's important for you to know why you're doing the drill and the drill's not for you to feel nervous and just like the theory being as much, you're in nervous situations more and more then you're going to be ready for the first tee shot, the US Mid-Am, because I've already been in nervous situations. To me, the point of it is more of 
what can you do process-wise to eliminate the, the little evil guy on your shoulder that's making you nervous? And that's more of the mm-hmm. takeaway. That's your par for each shot is like you, Gus was saying there's a par for each shot. The par for each shot on the putting is like, was I able to be process-oriented so emotion didn't even come into the, into the way? But that's right. not, it's not going to be possible all the time, but you can feel like different levels of it. It can either be screaming in your ear or it's just very subtle. And your goal is to make, keep it subtle as possible. Right. And your general don't care pe- uh, personality will help you there as well. But even you, I mean, you're going to get nervous on the first tee shot and all that. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 was, I was more nervous than I thought I was going to be when I played just last weekend. or Yeah, last week. Um, but I, I handled it well until I had a shank. And then that kind of like it kind of threw me for a loop a little bit because, you know, I, I, I wasn't expecting it. You know, it's not like I, not like I four putted because I was an idiot or I tried to go for the green too. And I chunked it in the water. That was just like, like a, like a blown fuse or something like that. I just was like out of nowhere. Sure. You'll become so. more resilient. And what we're talking about, like make every shot count between now and your tournament. Uh, it just makes you more resilient because the more you get process oriented, see an honest plan, wait for honest comfort. The more reps you feel of that, then when you do get a little, you know, hitch in your giddy up, you're not going to like melt down as much. And if you can yeah. just keep the meltdown, you know, from, you know, boiling over, then you can recover. And it's, it's sort of about meltdown management at your level uh, in one month. If we can do that, yeah. that's a good win. And I, and I think, I, uh, I think even though I didn't score, I didn't play the way I wanted to, I didn't shoot the number I wanted to shoot last time, I think I really did a good job of sticking to my long-term process that day on the golf course. And I really only had one bad swing that I was in control. I know I was in control of the shanks, but I wasn't expecting to shank it from 125 yards in the middle of the fairway. I made a double bogey on one bad swing. That was my own fault. I shouldn't have hit that club. So I think I've, I'm already improving with having a plan in place. So I think going forward using what Gus has said, what you're saying, I think I can improve my process rather quickly now that I can focus on that going into every single time I play golf from here until that day. Cool. Well, I want to wrap up all the goals. The The purpose of this first episode was to put some goals together and kind of paint you as a character in this challenge that we put together. And I think it's brilliant uh, what Neil, you know, has reframed it. You know, it's got to be a process-oriented thing. It's, the goal is not to get to the mid-am. The goal is for you to feel like, oh, I, I did something that helped me get one step closer. Um, so I want to rephrase those goals. But also, just like in terms of painting you as a golfer, what is your – so people at home can guess if you have a chance of making the U.S. Mid-Am. What is your best ever score? Uh, 69. Where was that? At my home course. Okay. And it was uh, legit. You counted them all, played the ball oh, yeah. down. Yep. Played the ball down, counted all the strokes, everything. Everything gets putted in. I've had a couple 69s. Um, I probably had five or six rounds under par my entire life, all within the last two years. How many so even not, par? I'm sorry? How many even par rounds? Uh, probably like 10, 15. Okay. 10 maybe. 
So that the tip of your iceberg and it, you know, golf is a lot about potential and your capabilities. So you know that you are physically capable and competition sometimes brings out interesting things in people. Some people are better in competition than they are just playing for fun. But I think that's a good little like understanding that it's a pretty low percentage of your casual round shot that will get you into the mid am, but it is possible. Yeah. I would say shooting even par in a tournament for me, is possible it's difficult i would really have to have a plan in place and be able to execute as i know i can shoot 72 good golf shots i know i'm capable of that am i capable of hitting the shot that i should hit comfortably every time i don't know and that's what this is this is what this should help me do because i know i can go shoot even par round I have that confidence that I can do it. Yeah. It's, I, it's just, you know, will I get in my own way? From what I've seen, you can do it for sure. Because and The reason I know, and I'm going to tie it into a humble brag, the, the one tournament I won that was meaningful, I didn't think that I could win. I had no idea that was even possible. And I, you know, hand of God, I, I, part of it was I got lucky but, you know, there's a saying about luck and opportunity and preparation and stuff. I played a lot in the run-up to that, and I had shot good scores and you know for fun. But uh, in a, I think a theme of this show, I wrote it down so I didn't forget, like part of what we're trying to say to you is like, Neil, Gus, and I have felt where you are before, and for you and other golfers, like there is more that you can do than you think you can do if you use your time better. And we're doing this. You might as well like give it a shot and believe that you can do it. Um, you know, you got nothing to lose. And uh, I, I think a lot of it is is the drills that Gus laid out there. Oh my, Gus, that is bad for the audio quality. Dragging the corpse through the garage. I'm sorry. I'm getting. I'm getting tired. I believe you can do it too, Sean. Thank I you. Think I mean, I think it's just just put your time in the right way and work on the. I mean, I teach fifteen hours of lessons a week to a whole range of players, and I can tell you that ten of those hours, although are interesting and can help that player with an understanding, I know that what they're gonna do to implement those things are things that may not make them a better player. Um, because they don't want to practice their putting and they don't want to understand why they can't get up and down and they don't want to deal with the parts of the game that best deal with adversity. Right. And that's, and that's really what golf is. You know, they don't want to work on the things that happen when things don't go as planned. They want to work on this idea that if every shot goes where I want it to go, then I'll be a better player. And it's just a silly it's a silly concept. So I teach a ton of lessons with superficial gains where, yeah, your swing looks better and yeah, the ball's flying better, but under the gun, none of this matters because you're going to revert back to what you're most comfortable with. And you haven't applied enough information and know your tendencies well enough to deal with the adversity that's going to come from that. And so I think you got to, 
there's no changes in in sort of your prep understand your golf course but don't over understand it and work on your golf game but don't overdo it work on your putting just like you do in the office and that's going to continue to help but i think changing your mindset here is what's going to allow you to deal with adversity on the golf course play better over time and thus not put so much end result on this idea and i think neil's right there like it's not about making the mid-am. The fact the mid-am does not matter to you. This is a test for yourself. And if the score turns out to be the one that gets you in, this is fantastic. Let's get blackout. You know, that's the idea. <laughs> right. But but this is really just a test of your mental capabilities um in in how you can control yourself out there and so yeah. you you keep it without keep it without the end result and do those things and if anything the worst thing that could happen out there is that you know more about yourself right go for the next round right so yeah. that's what i would go with guys it was fun from rhode island i'm signing Bef- out hold All on right. before you go i need one Short game drill. I used Clay's last week. Very helpful. What can you give me to uh, – because short game still needs improvement. Just one – what's your go-to drill when you need to – one tip, one drill For that I can chipping or pitching? Uh, chipping, like miss the green by five yards. Close close miss off the green. Yeah, I would – for sure. I, I think most players want to go back to the 30-yard range and just all of a sudden just start hitting 30-yard pitches. But with my really good players, what I try to get them to do and what I try to get them to understand prior to an event is that you need to practice how to chip a ball three feet, four feet, and five feet. Yeah, no, I don't know how to do that. You need to figure out the arc – of your club in terms of how long, how far does the club need to go back and forward to hit the claw? To hit it three, three feet, four feet. Gotcha. Okay. And if you can figure that out, if you can own the short ones, then you can own all of them. But what I see all the time is players who don't know how to hit it, who don't know how to make a small swing. And when you're saying three feet, four, three feet, four feet, five feet, you're talking just like carrying the ball. Three feet, carrying I'm it four feet. Literally carrying it in front of you from a three fairway line. With like, every club in the bag. Well, no, I mean, with your favorite club. I mean, typically I'm going to work in 58, 56s, and 54s. But, like, that idea of how, how do I apply an arc to get the ball to just go three feet? And you have to realize that the club has to be equal on both sides. So if you feel like you're hitting it three feet, but the but the back swing isn't matching the with the through swing, then you're doing it wrong. So trying to create equality on both sides of the golf ball and only hit it a short distance. And once you own that, you can start to apply the arc. It's basically the same deal. It's like what arc creates four, five feet of, of, of total golf ball hit. Right. And then, okay, so now I can take that and I can apply it. If you start at 30 yards, it's just so simple to get into a groove of, man, I can do this, but you really have no concept of how you're doing it. And so I would, I would get just close to, to the edge to of that clarify. green and okay, I would hit that three footer, four footer or five footer and own those, own them. And if you can own them, then you can, you can hit all the other shots. That would be just a playability drill. Um, as far as like drills that I do with like wedge instruction, I like to pick a penny, leave a penny. So I put a penny in front of the ball and a penny behind the ball. And I get you to try to leave that penny behind the ball and pick the penny in the front. But again, I would rather be there in person because 
says, if you're a steep player, I would never give you that drill. <laughs> right. So, you know, if, if you're if you're taking big divots in your pitches or if you're getting the club grounded, then what? you're obviously making a fundamental error in other parts. And I would never give you that drill. I would give you that drill if you were a good player who's already shallow. I'm going to make um, a note there. We need swing of his half wedges and video of his chipping and pitching. Yeah, that's where this if, – if just an overall note to the show, basically without any visuals, all of this information is like super argumentative. Subjective. And easily discountable because you can have a player who's steep and do one thing. You can have a player who's steep and do the exact opposite. So like we can make inferences, but without a total visual – it's really kind of silly to do what we're doing. Like if you told me, okay, I hit a shank, I can tell you that your path is too far to the right. And I can tell you that you're probably not rotating and that's simple. Right. But like, okay, Gus, now that I have that information, what do I do with it? You know, then it becomes like, well, I got to see it. You know, I got to see it. So that's part of the rules of the show. We're not allowed to make any swing recommendations before we have a consensus based on video of what would be something that could help him short term. Yeah. So with the short game, I would, I would try the most off. I need you to see if you have bends in your setup. That's the first thing. If you have a bend in your, if you have a deep knee bend, or if you have a major spine tilt, or if you have any sort of crease in your elbow or your wrist, you need to make note of that. Because if you have any of those bends, then you're doing it wrong. So, all right, Gus, you're in charge of getting a video from Sean. Well, I can get him a video. I'll get you a video. Gus. I mean, you're in charge of cool. looking at it for I'm next chipping. time. Perfect. All right. So, all right. Um, the goals of the thing, it's not to make the mid am. It's process goal. We're not going to make swing recommendations until we all agree on some sort of video. Uh, we got some drills lined up for Sean to do. Anything else before we get to the picks of the week? Um, I'm going to head out for you now because i got to go upstairs. My mom is complaining, so i got to go do that. <laughs> uh, the meatloaf. Let you make the picks of the week, and then I want to see him via text message so I know what to play in my DraftKings lineup. All right. All right. See you guys. Later, Bye. Gus. Good show. Thank you. All right. Talk to me, Dad Bird. So last week went 0 for 5. Whoa. Nothing really nothing good. Well, it's hard to win in golf. Is that? But, I was about to say, is it unlikely or is it? Yeah, it's super unlikely. So you're betting super small amounts, 5, 10 bucks on a few guys. And um, Who were our picks well, last week? I forgot. Last week was Sung J.M., uh, Peter Malnati, Doc Redman, uh, Gus maybe put some on Rory Sabatini. <laughs> um, and did you put any Wolfman? Oh, no, Matt you Jones. No, I didn't do Wolfman because you're the Wolfman. You're the Wolf guy. Oh, don't turn your back on I the know, Wolf pack. I know you're. Oh, you I'm might a Wolf guy. Wind I'm a up DG in guy. the body bag. I didn't. I didn't know he was in it. I think. I think he was a late sponsor invite, so I didn't see his name or I didn't give it a thought because that field is so bad. This field is even worse, actually. Oh Where are we um, off to this week? This is John Deere. It's terrible. It's such a bad field. Why Everybody's doesn't anybody play in it? British. So, oh, nobody plays because they're over in the British. Nobody plays. Yeah, everyone's already over there. Um, so last week was 0 for 5. I should get in some top 5, top 20 bets to uh, build a bankroll. Uh, just to offset some of the what does that losses. mean? What does build a bankroll mean? <laughs> so when you when you're when you're gambling across mm. any sport, 
you you start with the bankroll. So if I gave you two hundred bucks to start with, that's your bankroll. Okay. And you don't want to bet. You don't want to bet two hundred bucks week one. You want to save your bankroll, so you would bet like literally maybe like ten bucks that week. You put one dollar on ten guys to finish top ten, top twenty, and that would be building your bankroll. So okay, you won four bucks this week. Now you're two hundred four dollars. Maybe bet one more guy. You just never want to lose all your money in one week because that's how you go broke. So I'm betting very small amounts of my bankroll currently to, uh, you know, build it up slowly. But truly the thing about betting golf is there's two types of guys that bet golf. There's guys that will bet just for like a major, for example, they're going to bet Dustin Johnson. They're going to bet Ricky Fowler. And they're going to be like, Hey, hit Ricky Fowler, or hit, hit Dustin Johnson to win the major. Congratulations. You won $500 on your $100 bet. Dustin Johnson is not going to win the major. So when you look at golf odds, for example, this is how I look at it. So last week, Matt Wolf was 125 to 1. So I think of that as if they played this tournament 125 times, would Matt Wolf win more than once? My answer would be yes. Yes. So that is how I determine if that's like good odds or bad odds. You're like Warren Buffett deciding the value of a company before you bet on it. Yeah. So like, so this. So like like why would anyone ever bet Rory McIlroy to win the British Open? He's going to be like maybe not Rory who's playing really well right now. I don't even know. Like uh Brooks, Brooks is playing really well. Brooks is probably going to be like 4 to 1. Now, would you say that Brooks would win it once every four times? I guess you could say that, but there's so many good golfers, I don't know if I would. So I'm not going to bet him. I'm going to bet I don't know who I'm going to bet yet probably some european guys so this is your week, bankroll private how there. much is your um, bankroll uh for golf i'll probably bet uh 50 bucks a week maybe 100 bucks a week for a major uh so this week i went heavy i went i bet, I bet 60 bucks i put five bucks back on the wolf man how he is he is 20 22 to one i think 20 25 to one 25 to one this week He's still. That's probably still really low considering his field is so bad. And he seems like the type of guy that literally doesn't care that he just won last week. He just wants to win again. He fired his caddy last week. Did uh, he? Yeah, it was Rory's caddy. He Ooh. fired him because he was holding him back. So he said to his new caddy, I'm just going to do what I did in college, which is just grip it and rip it. And then he won. So um, I like him again this week. But on my big bet, 50 bucks on Joel Damon, close personal friend. We'll get him on the pod one of these days. He is going off at fifty to one, which is criminally underpriced. He's like one of the best players in this field. He's gonna win the tournament. Fifty bucks to win, twenty five hundred bucks. Build the bankroll. Let's go, Joel. Let's go, Joel. And on that, oh, where are you betting? By the way, we got to get him as a sponsor. Duh, <laughs> five dimes. Look up five dimes owner. Crash car crash. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what that Costa means, Rica. but I guess I'll figure it out in uh, post. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know if he died, got abducted, but he ain't around anymore. So is your uh, bankroll FDIC insured? No, <laughs> no, God, no. I'm never going to get it out. I tried cashing out in Bitcoin, and they wanted so much information. I'm never going to get it. It's, it's fake money. It's literally just fake money. Mm, it's just something. It's a good little strategy game for you. I get it. I kind of like that. There's a game within the game. You're not going to overextend yourself, and you're kind of playing poker. No. You're sort of just plodding along and waiting yeah, for you're just it. Playing, you're just playing the odds. You're just trying to figure <clears> out. It's way more fun to bet guys like Joel Damon and 
I bet Bronson Burgoon this week because he played well last week. Then literally betting the favorites. That's so boring, and you're gonna lose money. You're gonna lose money in the long run betting Brooks Kepley won every tournament. <clears throat> so, is there like a community on Twitter that gets excited yeah. when they see something like, "Oh, that's so undervalued. Hop on this." Yeah. Huge, huge like so have, what's the latest one that was just like outrageously bad odds vegas screwed up uh you know there hasn't really been big bad odds what there have been is victor hovland has come in way uh overpriced so his odds to win it to win a pga tour event are very are very much lower like closer to brooks kepka than like when john rom came out because they kind of came out the same like college stud and you knew they were going to win but rom and dechambeau's odds were way higher so no one's really sure why victor hovland is any different than dechambeau and rom where their first tournament out he's like 20 to 1 where he should be closer than that wolf range of like 120 because he's a good player but it takes like a special player and takes him takes some reps to win on tour you know very few people just show up and win but as you already know, Matt Wolf is a special breed. Yeah, what was the uh, consensus on Twitter why they were doing that? They just overhyped him for whatever reason? Yeah, just overhyped. I think the bookies actually smartened up a little bit. To They know he's good, and they, they, they got burned a little bit back in the day on Rom and DeChambeau because the, these guys on Twitter, they know. They know who's good coming out of golf, and the bookies don't really because they're just all overseas. So uh, I think the bookies just – protected themselves a little bit on uh on victor Hovland. i think the, the pebble beach thing you know didn't help that he had such a strong showing before he turned pro uh, but uh there's it's so random these guys are so professional that they like jason kokrak what is his odd doing so high i gotta bet him like what are you talking about it's jason kokrak no way he's winning but yeah there's some there's some really good twitter files that if this got big i'd love to send them to love because they're very much like into this sort of thing like who, regular guys who just, is the go-to this guy he's the go-to for everything it's adon 7x is his twitter i don't really follow him for golf so much as other sports but he's like a super normal guy who's not like an asshole like some of these other guys are the big guy his name is uh pat mayo he's like a full draft kings he does a like a four-hour-long podcast just for majors, just for Augusta on betting golf. And he's like the go-to guy. He's the guy that hit the 900 uh, or what did he hit up, 90-to-1 parlay on the Masters to guys to make cuts that I tailed him for. Dang, 90-to-1. 90-to-1. Yeah, uh, that was nice. So who, who so. what's the profile of a guy like that? That's his full-time job just trying Full, to uh, – Yeah, he works for DraftKings. So he does like build lineup. I don't do I don't do DraftKings. I don't do that stuff. Um, he just pump, but he does stuff for everything. Like if you follow this guy on Twitter, not even sure how many how there's enough time in the day for him to do all these videos, podcasts, graphics because he does he does NFL, golf, and um, that might be it. He does golf year round, and then he gets into NFL, and he's just I don't even follow him on Twitter because he just. It's too much nonsense. It's too much non-golf stuff. I only care about the golf. I don't care about football. He just loves it. What's his win percentage? Like I've heard, like the greatest of all time in Vegas will like be fifty-one percent. Is there like a score? Yeah, that's like that's like betting. That would be like if I was betting, like in college football, I'm betting twenty games or I'm betting ten games a week, 
If I can hit 51%, that's great. In golf, you only need to hit 10%, 20%. You only got to hit a $10 bet on a, on 120 on one like 10 bucks on Matt Wolf. That was that was 1200 $1200. Wow. Uh, if I make if I win 1200 bucks for an entire college football season, that's awesome. So you just need to hit one or two golf winners a year. Like I, I had two or three winners last year, um, and that was way more than I made in college football. So you don't got to hit 51% in golf. And if you bet NBA, you bet NFL, you're just trying to get 51%. But in golf, you can just be plugging along at 10 15%. Is that your favorite thing to bet? Golf? Yeah. My favorite thing is to bet is first-round leader. That's the best golf bet. That's the best golf and the best bet in sports. Period. Because Why? you you get the basically the same odds as the full tournament. So like you get the same essentially the same odds. It's done after Thursday, and if you really wanted to get into it, you can totally get a little bit more of an edge by looking at weather forecasts, AM round, PM round, like soft rain overnight soft course am guys probably gonna go out and shoot a number wind's gonna pick up in the afternoon or wind's gonna lay off in the afternoon and dustin johnson's going out at 3 p.m probably coming off a bender feeling a little bit better he's probably gonna shoot a 62 and and do that so i think the first round leader bet is awesome because it's done after thursday and if there's a tie at the top you still can win you just have to shoot like you can bet you can have five winners they just chop each other off, but it's just um, it's done after one day. And and you'll notice there's once you start betting them, there's guys that tear up the first day and don't win on Sunday, but so, they are just so sick people on have Thursday. like spreadsheets at home, like Charlie Hoffman always goes low on Thursday oh, at Colonial. Oh, like Charlie Hoffman, first round leader, Masters, like he's been the first round leader, in Masters, like, the Masters for the last six years. Bet the house, but no, it did this year. This year he was like the favorite to be the first round leader. Everyone's like, ah, f you, bookies, you scumbags, because they knew, they knew he was going to do it. So, uh, it's fun to do. Like this guy Scott Brown, he two years ago was like first round leader seven times. Scott Brown, Scotty B, you never heard of him? <laughs> Thursday, Thursday Scott. So, Scotty be it's, gone it's, by Sunday. Yeah, he'll be gone by Friday. He's already back yeah, home. That, uh, Ain't no net Jets for Scotty B. That's the Keegan Bradley. First round leader, Friday cut. So got Jays on. Yep. And that's the Keegan Bradley. That's called they call that going full Keegan on Twitter. <laughs> oh man, I'm getting such an education. I am not interested in the least in gambling, but I kind of like the strategy of what you're doing now that you describe it. I thought it was and, just like a random thing. Like, ooh, I was smart about that. Like, ooh, I win. I'm smarter than, you know, I'm like a crystal ball or whatever. But I like what you're doing. You're basically playing poker. Like, you're waiting for a good hand. Yeah. I mean, and, and this all came from Twitter. Like, I didn't just, like, like, I learned about guys who are way more invested in betting on golf than I am and just picking up on why they're betting and who they're betting. And then you could really get into detail about like, all right, these are bent greens, and here are the stats on bent greens, guys. These are pole greens. Here's the pole guys, and you can you can get off that. But Do these guys have I, enough of an influence to adjust the odds? Like they'll put a Twitter oh, they'll put a Twitter time. tweet out there, and everybody hops on the bet. Oh yeah, big time. Like just today, there was odds 
people were sending out screenshots of their bets and then they're like, oh, they were betting on that uh, Joaquin Neiman guy. His odds dropped a ton already. I think it was Harold Varner or who's the other guy? Um, I forget his name, but his odds dropped already. Luckily, I got Joel at fifty when he opened at fifty. So, so you lock it him. in. If you lock it in, you get it where you start. That's like across yeah, the board in gambling. Start. Yep. Yep. There's uh, so. Right. Can you explain one last thing? Uh oh, Neil's trying to call me. You still there? Yeah. All right, so just like I've been to Vegas in the, in the sports book, and it says Knicks plus 1,100. What does that mean? So plus 1,100, that's like a big – that's a big underdog. So just consider it. So in Vegas, like uh, that would be winning $110 to one basically is what that is. Okay. So you just kind of kind of take off that last zero and – so if it's minus 100 or minus 110, you have to bet $110 to win 100. So if they were plus 1100, betting $100 would win you $1100. Okay. So if it's plus 200, it's all based on $100. So if they're plus 200, betting 100 gets you uh $200. So like Matthew Wolf, he was he would have been he would have been twelve he would have been plus twelve he would have been plus twelve thousand five hundred one hundred dollars would have made you twelve fifty you just do the zeros there I know it's not like super easy to yeah I've never understood what it what it meant I was too embarrassed to ask to bet on any of those things so I'd wait to see one that like there were some things that would flash across as like five to one I'm like yeah I'll do the five to one yeah, so it's just like in like math, I think in like elementary school where you can like subtract the zeros or delete the zeros. So like Matt Wolf was the Europeans do it better. This is an American gambling system. Europeans it's easier to follow. There's be like one point one and then you'd get it. Americans are kinda dumb with that. That's but just like that, that would be just, like the multiplier. It'd be like a hundred gets you a hundred and sixteen exactly. bucks. Exactly. It's okay. it's easier to it's easier to figure out. Uh, golf is simple. It's just like 10 to one, 20 to one, 50 to one. They don't do the, they don't do the goofy minus one ten plus two ten stuff like that. Okay. Cause it's just, so what are you in the hole through week one? You had, Oh, you went Oh for five over five. I think I bet like 60 bucks this week, last week. All right. You're um, 60 bucks in the hole going into episode two. Yeah. And this week we're going, I know I have Bronson Burgoon. Matthew Wolf and Joel Damon. Joel Damon's the big money guy. So I think I bet. I think I got my another 60 in the hole this week. Uh, the only problem is the first round leader guys don't come out until Wednesday. So uh, I usually forget to bet on them, but I'll probably put another, probably put 10 bucks on Joel for that one too. Do you know him or are you just joking? No, I played in a program with him. Where about? His caddy. Um, they were playing at the web event outside of Buffalo about an hour south peak and peak is a golf course and one of our friends was like the player liaison for the web and johnny russo owner of hamburg brewing company mm-hmm. was doing the beer uh like a beer deal for the tournament so our friend brad um knew he got a spot in the pro-am for doing the beer thing and he's like yeah i got you with a, I got you with this guy joel he's a great guy uh and we ended up playing the back nine with him because he missed his flight and we just hit he's just like super normal guy him and his caddy were both like off 
awesome. Scotty, Gino, they're like best friends, play junior golf together. And we've kind of lightly stayed in touch since then. So, all right. What are his odds again? 50 to one. All right. Let's get it done, Joel. Yeah. He's, and he's a bucket hat guy. Oh, bucket hat gang, bucket swag. He wasn't until he played with me after the pro-am. So I don't know. Mm. Think about that. Trendsetter dad bird. He wasn't wearing a bucket hat then. He was wearing a, I don't even know what he was wearing, but he was, it was, it was fun. Okay, that's it. Episode one of the Dad Bird Project is over. Send us an email at thedadbirdproject at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thedadbirdproject and on Twitter at dadbirdproject. Hope you enjoyed. Please leave some feedback and let us know how we can improve for next week. Later on.